Good evening and welcome to Psychedelic Healing. I am your host, Sonia Cotto, nurse anesthesiologist and mental health advocate, here to talk to you about psychedelics. Tonight, I have Erica Dick. She is a professor and Canada Research Chair in the History of Health and Social Justice at the University of Saskatchewan. She has authored and edited several books and articles on the history of psychedelics and is currently the president of the Alcohol and Drugs History Society. Her new book, Psychedelics, A Visual Odyssey, is set to be released this April 16th. This book has been described as a gorgeously illustrated journey through psychedelics and their global history that explores how psychedelic visions have inspired and given meaning to humans throughout time. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much, Sonia, for having me. Yes. Oh, you've authored so many, so many books. I, Your first book actually is one of the ones that I kind of want to touch up on, uh, Psychedelic Psychiatry, because that is beautiful. That's what is transforming mental health today, even though it's been used in history and then blocked, right? You know, tell me about actually we're called to write that book. Yeah, thanks for the question. It, it feels like a really different era almost from when I started working on that project, which was the late 1990s. I started my PhD in 2001 and I had this idea that I'd found all these records in the in a medical school library looking at all these different kinds of experiments. And there was this kind of batch of psychedelic experiments or experiments that usually used LSD and masculine. And I was fascinated by how these researchers tried to make sense of these experiments that seemed to sort of sit outside the frame of what most of Western psychiatry was doing at that time. And I was enchanted by this group of people who came together and kind of a motley crew in some respects. They brought in social workers and nurses and artists and alcoholics and tried to make sense of these non-ordinary experiences. And it really drew me to this set of research that was going on that was also framed within this really interesting political moment where researchers are also really quite committed to finding accessible treatments. And that really carried me through my, my PhD, but that finished in 2005. And still the conversation about psychedelics at that time was really different from today, such that even members of my committee were kind of joking that now I had to do something real, lest I be, you know, part of the person who studied psychedelics. And today, that conversation, of course, is completely different. Wow. Yeah. Very, very different back in the day. I mean, I remember even in, you know, D.A.R.E. Drugs 2000 about, you know, LSD makes your brain bleed and all these negative, you know, stories that they had about psychedelics. And here they were doing research in -hmm. mental health. Um, I did want to touch on your experience with psychedelics, you know, everyone has kind of a story of their exposure. Is that why you got into um, psychedelic history, you know, and research? Or how, how, how did that transpire? It's funny, and I feel kind of silly sometimes even admitting this, because my entry into psychedelics was, I think, perhaps different from what people expect. You know, many people have come to me and said, like, you know, you must have taken so many psychedelics to have been studying this for so long. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever you decide is, you know, it's a really different story. I was I was drawn to the politics of this experimentation. I was drawn to the dynamism of these researchers. And I feel ex- incredibly fortunate to have stumbled upon this at a time when Humphrey Osmond was still alive. Abram Hoffer was still alive. There were a number of people, even Albert Hoffman was still alive. I didn't get to meet him, but I did email with him. And I was naively out there kind of collecting stories from people who, at the time, some of them even said to me, you know, 
Nobody's come around asking me for what I think. I've been marginalized from the profession. I don't have a very strong, you know, reputation or I'm, they didn't say I'm worried about my legacy. Their kids more said that. But in order to gain access to people, in order to get research ethics approval from my university to go out and do these interviews, I had to promise to not talk about my own personal use. And my research ethics people insisted that if anybody told me that they had taken psychedelics, I needed to report it because this, of course, was you know potentially criminal behavior or people might have, and I quote, brain damage. Um, this was what was coming back wow. to me. And it's so bizarre to think about that now, but I had to really tread this line very carefully. And in that first book that I wrote, Psychedelic Psychiatry, I kind of play with that idea a little bit by showing that in order to do the project, I had to keep that my own personal experiences concealed or not talk about it at all. And yet, in order to gain the trust of people who had taken these kinds of risks, they wanted to know about my experiences. They wanted to know whether I was prepared to take them seriously or if I was just there to kind of reinforce some of the negative stereotypes that already currently were in the in in the ether at the time. So it's a really interesting kind of moral moment, not even an ethical moment. And I I had recreational experiences, not a lot, a handful. More often, I found myself in the position of like the the designated driver or de- designated guider, I would say. Mm-hmm, the sitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't even know really, I, I sort of naively came into that position. So I was curious about things more than experienced about it, I have to say. And really, my psychedelic experiences came after after really kind of immersing myself in the psychedelic research. So it was, yeah, because, you know, you look at it now, everybody's out in the open and discussing it, but back then they had to be very careful, you know, especially in their positions. Absolutely. It it really has changed to a point where that could be seen as something that could undermine your credibility to something that enhances your credibility to have those experiences and that shift, I think, has been relatively rapid over the last, I'd say, over the last 10 years. That that's really become a clear shift. Mm-hmm. And even now, even how I see, even with ketamine since 2020, right? I opened the clinic in 2020 where nobody knew ketamine, the psychiatrist, everybody was really hesitant, resistant to, you know, refer patients. And to now, you know, they're contacting us. We're, we're going to offices and educating them because they want to learn. They're wanting to have an experience. You know, Mm -hmm. so we do experiential training for professionals, you know, to have that. Um, Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's, you know, coming into this this growth in psychedelic healing. The book that you just published is so beautiful. You know, I can't wait to get a printed copy of it. The artwork, the history that you show in the art, that psychedelics have been around for thousands of years. You know, and you actually, in all the artwork and the history that you entailed, I mean, it's it almost seems like your baby of the history of all history that you've researched since your existence in the history of psychedelics, right? Yeah. Wow. It it has been a real, it was a really enjoyable project in part because I was showcasing something that really is goes far, far beyond my own knowledge. It was more a case of deep sort of deeply engaging with my Rolodex and seeing, you know, what can these contacts and these networks bring to bear? And that was it was a wonderful way to connect with people also during a pandemic moment as we collected this research, reaching out to people who've, you know, kept materials in an underground way or people who are kind of bursting onto the scene with artwork that depicts 
new illustrations of indigenous engagement with psychedelics, for example, or sacred plants. It was really fun to sort of connect with all of these people to see what's out there. And it's merely the tip of the iceberg. Of course, there's some images in there that I think are sort of classic and people might expect to see them. Um, and others that I hope people are like, where did this come from? And hopefully we'll dig a little bit more and and recognize that there's a whole world of psychedelic illustrations, artwork, and other ephemera that that really showcase the kind of dynamism of this burgeoning field. Oh, yeah. And I see that beautiful art piece behind you with Albert Hoffman. I, Hoffman and it, it's gorgeous. And I didn't see that in the book, though. I just got this piece of art from uh, the San Francisco Psychedelic Gallery. It's an Alex Gray painting. So some of you, some of your listeners may know Alex Gray. He's, of course, an artist for Tool and his partner, Alison Gray, as well. I've done a number of different pieces. This was done for Albert Hoffman's birthday. So beautiful. I feel so excited to own one now and have it here. You can maybe tell from, from the image on our Zoom screen right now, but kind of ringed around Albert Hoffman's head are different historical actors from the history of psychedelics or different people who've kind of helped to move this story along. So it was really quite special to me. Yeah, no, that is beautiful. Definitely a beautiful art piece. And But even your book has so many different historical, you know, from Egyptian artifacts to, gosh, you name it, it's there. So I love that thorough history of that. What was probably your favorite part in determining you know, or getting all this research or something that you noted that you learned and was probably your favorite in your book? Gosh, that's a tough question. So it was some of the artwork has such, there's such stories attached to them and only glimpses of them, you know, their personal stories to me, you know, someone who had treasured this and kept it in their, in their home and then agreed to share it with me or children or next of kin who were looking at whether or not they would give permission to print something. And and the many conversations that it took sometimes to sort of reconcile this awkward relationship to a psychedelic past that sometimes, you know, grown children are saying, you know, they thought that what their parents were involved in were sometimes maybe bad or criminal or something that they should be ashamed of. And the process of even healing through history uh, has been really rewarding. I know the kinds of conversations and, and relationships we've built by working with people to sort of uncover some of these stories. Uh, we've had a lot of tearful conversations as we look through just permission to use images and what they meant to the people who held them. And I, ha I guess I have to say, though, that some of my very favorite are young, I'll, I'll say young, younger than me in their 20s, you know, indigenous artists in the Amazon, another one in Mexico, who through the power of translators, Google Translate at times and WhatsApp and <laughs> technologies, um, they were willing to share their artwork, which we we paid for as well, but um, really a sort of new beginnings on seeing a different kind of psychedelic future. And their take on what psychedelic history and the psychedelic future mean, I think, are really important for embedding in the psychedelic moment in our kind of Western society. As we think about where a lot of these plants come from and where a lot of those sacred stories have been held. Um, so I'm really, really proud of the Indigenous artwork that we tried to sort of spread throughout the book. Yeah, no, and and I really appreciated that because it's it's been difficult because we think of this as like the psychedelic discovery and it's all innovation and new and we've kind of taken it over and we've forgotten all the, even to the recent years of Albert Hoffman and all the other, you know, 
trailblazers were just, you know, just spoiled of all the work that they've done, but even further the thousands of years of the indigenous cultures and even further back beyond them. And, you know, this book actually really goes through and takes on that history, you know, from each of them. And I, I love the, how you explain, you know, the historical of ayahuasca and ibogaine and each of those medicine, the plant medicines, right? And their roots and the artwork connected, showing that it was in existence from from very, very um, long, long ago. Um, when you did communicate with, you know, all the different um, cultures and the different histories of the different medicines that they used, did you find that it was more like a ceremonial or was it more used for healing, like in, in certain of the medicines that they use specifically for certain things? Yeah, you know, I think that probably the the takeaway message for me there has been, you know, just the wide diversity of ways that people have, I'm going to say, encountered these psychoactive substances. So sometimes as plants, sometimes as working with indigenous elders um, and in and anthropologists and ethnobotanists who have, you know, put me in touch with other indigenous communities. Sometimes what I what I came away from that was that psychedelics were almost a secondary or even tertiary con uh, feature, that the ceremony was more important than the substance itself. The substance is part of a, a much more holistic set of understanding about why we seek healing, what the healing represents, who conducts the healing, and that changes from place to place and community to community. So that was really, really fascinating to think of because it kind of turned that Western biomedical lens on its head a little bit about thinking, oh, yeah. thinking about the solution first. Whereas this was much more a, a different way in. And to that end, yeah, whether it's ceremonial or ritualistic becomes a bit blurry, becomes difficult to pinpoint or define because sometimes people are looking for answers for certain things and they're like, well, that wasn't really ceremony, but this was ceremony. And even trying to tease apart how one would categorize those things changes over time and across places. The lingering sort of enduring concept, though, is that you know, although I I don't have you know every nation represented here or something, really there's a it, psychedelic stories wrap around the globe, and there's something really fascinating about this sort of enduring quest for seeking out these non ordinary experiences in a variety of ways through the means that are available, and uh, and that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Even with the um, with the ibogaine, you know, when you go through the the history of that, the iboga with the African healers, you know, here now in the U.S., for example, we have this as you know the cure of addiction. You know, even we have Kentucky with the forty two million dollars in funding to really combat you know their epidemic, and so hopefully they'll be the model to like bring that about. But in Africa, it's a like you know it's the transition into adulthood you they go through it it's yeah. like it's a ceremony you know and they don't really have addictions right it's just more of a transitional work you know i am now an adult right yeah it is fascinating to see the way that these different substances have found purchase in different cultures and uh, i know the work of of other people colleagues and friends who are you know i i think of the work of alex Guerin, for example who's looking at ayahuasca in like urban Shanghai, anything like that's really far away, wow. the Amazon. And that seems like a really different setting from, you know, some of the images that we get from these ayahuasca ceremonies that seem to be set aside in these quite rudimentary settings, you know, not in urban Shanghai. Uh, right. And I think, you know, that kind of work that that kind of 
disrupts those ideas about where we assume these things come from or how they're used is really important. Again, as we think about the diverse ways that people encounter psychedelics, but also sometimes why, you know, there are also lots of reasons why people don't want to talk about them and why we don't know about very much until his book comes out about, for example, uh, ayahuasca in Shanghai. And, you know, people have served a lot of time in jail for the kind of work that's taking place there as well. So it's a reminder that some of these stories are have been quieted or, or silenced for a reason, or people have kept them quiet for a reason. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Especially in the different cultures and different societies where they definitely have cruel and unusual punishment. So Yeah. And in your, you know, research and studying all these different cultures, have you noted or have they described like, you know, ayahuasca is more, for example, ancestral and going through generational traumas, whereas iboga is, you know, for us, we use it in the U.S. for addiction, right? We have a lot of people traveling to Mexico or St. Kitts and doing it for working with that or, you know, ketamine is more of like a spiritual love frequency for healing and it's not really a plant medicine, you know, still psychoactive, psychedelic. But, you know, have you noticed that that theme in each of the different plant medicines? Yeah, you know, and this might be a sort of superficial answer because, uh, you know, ideally I'd like to like travel to all these places and really do deep interviews and, you know, really understand, but uh, superficially, so from from reading what I can and from going to some places, it does seem to change depending on where the kind of psychedelic community is located. And that might be a virtual community for that matter. Um, but it's it's interesting to me to, to hear the kind of, um, you know, when I hang out with or do interviews with people who've been mushroom cultivators, you know, they have certain ways of talking about fungi and talking about, you know, psilocybin. Uh, and, you know, there may be like kind of off put by some of the MDMA talk, which is down the street at another, you know, gathering or something. Right. There's these kind of interesting like subcultures within psychedelics as well. And I remember meeting with Anne Shulgin, uh, who very generously gave me some of her time and shared her stories of remembering like the times that Albert Hoffman and her and then Anne's husband, Sasha Shulgin, of course, you know, inventor so called of LSD and, you know, uh, and of course, Hoffman also isolated psilocin and psilocybin from the mushrooms. And then Shulgin, perhaps most famously, reintroduced MDMA, but also 200 other or more than 200 other psychoactive substances. So, you know, she sort of gave this really charming story about like listening to these two men sort of banter about like what's the meaning of these different substances and which ones are best. And perhaps in a show of uh, deference or perhaps this was authentic. I don't know. Of course, Hoffman said, well, you know, MDMA is my favorite. And, you know, Sasha Shulkin said, well, LSD is my favorite. <laughs> I don't know how, how much there's truth in that. And maybe there is, but it kind of is beside the point. There's this interesting sort of fascination with, with those two in particular about the chemical structure that really sort of dove into that uh, side of things. Whereas talking to some of the folks around ayahuasca or even mushrooms as well, like thinking about rituals, thinking about ceremony, thinking about plant-based uses, it it sort of contains those conversations in a really different container, sorry for the repetitive language there, but it, it puts things in a different context. And I'm not, I don't yet feel confident that there's 
yeah, I don't I don't feel confident in kind of ranking or prioritizing them, but I do find that the way people talk about the different psychedelics really depends on the communities in which they're embedded. Yeah, even with LSD, um, noting the history of you know whether you're on the you know on the West Coast, it's more community music, the Grateful Dead, you know that kind of community, and it was just all about just being in community and music and dancing and connection in that sense. And then on the opposite coast, East Coast, we have you go within, you meditate. It's very ceremonial, and it's you're within yourself. Um, so even in that context, <laughs> LSD of the same medicine is completely different, right? Yeah. So I guess it is uh, the beholder. And you know, I we we're fascinated by the kind of flow of I'll say underground LSD after 1970-ish. Um, you know, I don't think that the flip switched on a certain day, but we know that some of the amateur chemists who were working on the West Coast ended up in Goa. And then asking people about the LSD or acid scene in Goa and the sort of coalescence with the rise of trance music and thinking about different contexts in which LSD was, you get East and West meeting both American East and West, but you also get East and West meeting in a different kind of Eastern Western context and following the hippie trail into the Goan desert uh, with probably, we don't know for sure, I don't know for sure, underground American acid. Um, it creates this other dynamic of like a different space that cultivates different kinds of meanings associated again with the same probably substance, um, but you know in this sort of natural hollowed out enclave that produces these kinds of. I, I'm told I have not been to Goa unfortunately myself, but these incredible. We only have one picture from there, but there were many pictures to to consider as we thought about this alternate space that tried to recreate some of the dynamic of both the West and East Coast in the United States and, and pull it into a different context altogether. Yeah, that's it's, it's interesting to see, you know, with the different cultures and, and what it brings about. I do note that there's different, there's differences in each medicine, right? With, I know MDMA is an empathogen, right? And that's why it's really good for the trauma. So that's why I'm kind of, I'm like a clinical base. So I'm always like, okay, how can we bring it into the clinic? And even though, you know, obviously, in all the you did all the historical and the research, and it's all done in community. A lot of it's community or meditative, um, ceremonial spaces. And then here I am in the clinic, trying to be able to implement that because in the cultures today in, in the U.S., you know, we're, we're very clinical based. We want to go to office. We want to feel safe. Not everybody's going to go off into, you know, the forest, uh, sit in ceremony with certain tribes. You know, so I I'm definitely always curious about the clinical and the healing aspects in a clinic, right? So who's to say what is going to be the future in, in that space? Have you and you, I don't know if you're able to talk or touch base on your personal experiences with any of the medicines and any healing or any awarenesses that came for you in, in that respect? Yeah, I had a, a pretty interesting experience recently that I'll, I'll share. And I I'll start by saying that I have not had a, a clinical experience, so to speak. I haven't been in a clinical setting under the influence of a psychedelic. And I've read thousands of clinical case studies historically, and then some more contemporary as well, particularly as we tried to compare, you know, how are people responding? Is it is it the same then as it was now? Of course, there are really different contexts, really different vocabulary that people use to describe things that are happening. So even just trying to get some 
appreciation for that. But something really special happened a few months ago. I had years ago, many years ago, I found a manuscript in the archive about a peyote ceremony that had taken place in Canada with the Native American church. And it was sort of on the precipice of, you know, the the legal authorities were kind of clamping down and looking at these uh, indigenous uses as, you know, something horrific and bad and dangerous and all those kinds of uh, labels that were attached to it. And this group of indigenous people in Saskatchewan and Alberta, Montana and North Dakota came together to kind of push back against that designation. And they had invited four, they're described as white scientists in the newspapers. These four white scientists were invited to the teepee, literally the language they used at the time, <laughs> to sort of like vouch for them, you know, and say like, no, 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 it's okay. And of course, it's, you know, the guy who coined the word psychedelic was one of the guys invited. So he's already sympathetic. So the special thing that happened to me was many years later, actually in preparation for this book, we asked for permission to use some images from that ceremony in 1956. And the children and grandchildren of some of the people who had assembled for that ceremony in 1956 are still actively involved in protecting sacred access to peyote. It doesn't grow here in Canada, but they go on a pilgrimage. And they invited me to ceremony. And they invited me to sit with them and think about, you know, this the kind of legacy of cooperation in defending and telling authentic stories, but also cherishing and honoring and deferring to the power of the peyote plant as well. And it was an incredibly powerful moment for many reasons, intellectually, psychologically, but also really emotionally. And for me, it was such a learning experience and a healing experience as this, you know, outsider often I felt to, you know, witnessing this history. But now I felt like I I was part of contributing to the history in meaningful ways by drawing these kinship ties together. And we could see these chains of of kinship through the ages uh, in ceremony and afterwards as we integrated that back into our into our bodies. It was it was an incredibly special moment. Wow, that's so beautiful. And just that connection and the history, being able to, from that picture and have that connection from the 50s, that is very, very cool. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful to to the Kelly Daniels who invited me, the Native American Church president at the time who invited me. And uh, we've continued to to talk since and, um, and hope to continue working together and learning about also the place that peyote has as a healing mechanism in in a community that is is really in need of healing. Oh, so much. There's so much trauma in their in their history and it's and it's definitely ancestral through that, you know, from generation to generation, even today, those that are on reservations, the, the trauma that they experience and isolation. Yeah. And I believe that we will all be able to heal with all these medicines. And I hope that the access will be available to those, you know, whether they can afford it or not, because everybody needs healing, everyone. And now we're finally in a place that we can communicate that. And you have the most beautiful art book <laughs> with history and education and, you know, just going through the, the times and for you to just put it collectively together and then share it, because that's what it's about. It's community connection. Um, I do like that you were able to put this book together starting through COVID because it did probably help you in still finding that connection because so many people were isolated during that time. So that probably helped you in, in that sense as well. There's yeah. been 
a timeliness to it that I think, you know, I've I've reflected on this before that, you know, the, the pandemic has really changed the way we think about kinship, the way we think about connection, how we connect using technology and, you know, the lack of sometimes, you know, three-dimensional connections. <laughs> the other thing that is really impressed upon me in, in part putting this together is it feels like people are, some people are ready to share their stories now. Uh, the sort of time has opened up a little bit, both for, perhaps due to a desire to connect, but also if we think about, you know, the kind of demographics, those those who in the 1960s were sort of the apostles of psychedel- of a psychedelic era are aging out and their wisdom in this space is changing. And I think there's a bit of tension about uh, whether we are trying to create a more sanitized or, you know, clinically robust version of psychedelic science this time that sort of moves away from some of the things that happened in the past. Like, we don't want another 60s moment or we don't want people to, like, freak out, you know, shy away from some of those conversations. And I think there's an opportunity here to reconcile some of those conversations as well, rather than moving past them, but integrating them into our knowledge networks, thinking about different kinds of expertise, embodied expertise that may not fit into a textbook or sit on a library shelf. And the process of building those relationships has been so rewarding. And I really hope that this book showcases, you know, there are different places where this knowledge comes from. And we should probably kind of keep our eyes wide open as we look around both geographically, but also within our own communities about where we might find these hidden treasures. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And and I see it all the time, actually. I'm I'm part of that where we have that clinical, you know, medicine clinic, and then we have the underground, you know, mm. the shamans and the medicine women and men that, you know, oh, the these clinics and these biopharmaceutical companies are going to ruin it all. And it's, I don't think that's it. I think that there's so many people that need healing that we just need the right people and the right spaces to provide it for everyone. Like I said, some people are not going to go to Peru, hike up the mountains and do ceremony, you know, in Peru, but they will come to a clinic being monitored, you know, so there's space and healing for everyone. You know, I've had patients that come in for treatment that they came in and was like, oh no, this, it's a little too clinical for me. Even though we try to make it spa and relaxing, it's still clinic. They're like, they want to be with among the trees and the nature, which definitely is probably the best experience, you know, to be grounded in one with nature when you're doing uh, certain plant medicines, but then there's others that would never, ever touch that. So the ability to heal everyone is is there, you know, and I love your history. I love that art. I can't wait to purchase my copy. I just got to look at it ahead of time in PDF form and I'm like, oh, ooh, ah, ee, you know, so I look forward to it on, on April 16th. And I, if anybody's interested in more information, you can look in the bio and we'll have all the resources to get um, get your copy when it comes out because you will definitely love it. Um, just, you know, my personal opinion. But I am so thankful for you to come tonight and discuss about your book and the history and your experiences. Hopefully we'll meet each other in a, in a conference soon and where you're sharing your art and I'll get my autograph. <laughs> Thank you so much for this uh, opportunity to talk to you about it as well. This is the first time I've talked about this book. It's been a labor of love. So it's really great to you know, be able to hold it now and reflect on it in different ways. So I really, I really thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. You're very welcome. 
Thank you everyone out there for listening to this week's episode of Psychedelic Healing. Thank you, Erica, and everyone have a beautiful evening. Bye.